Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. The cost of work-life balance. I'm Gordon Deal with Nicole Murray. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour. How much of your salary would you sacrifice in order to achieve more balance in life? Hear what a new culture survey has found. Ready to go the alternate route with your next vehicle. Tech analyst Rob Enderly identifies his favorite electric cars. Are Biden and Trump too old for office? Hear about Americans over 65 capable of retiring financially, but refusing to do it. And why the lifespan of your new sofa is declining. So these couches are often produced with cheaper materials. They are prone to trends. So maybe more of a focus on the aesthetics of the couch than what's underneath. And then they're often going straight to the landfill after just a few years, which is no good for the environment. Rachel Wolf at the Wall Street Journal on why that new $3,000 couch might be trash in just a couple of years. Well, according to the latest data, there are nearly four times as many working Americans aged 65 and older today than just a few decades ago, and millions of them aren't in it for the money. They simply reject the idea of retirement. What kinds of people want to keep working when they don't have to, and why do they do it? Journalist Mark Walton, author of a new book called Unretired, spoke with scores of them. Mark, what are they saying? What they're saying is, Gordon, that they don't believe in retirement. Uh, they're not the retiring types, and that they think that the entire concept of stopping working and stopping doing what it is that you love and have loved throughout your career is absurd just because you've reached a certain age. Yeah, so they uh, are able to retire financially and choose not to, or, or they need to work for financial reasons, or a little both? And that's, you know, that's the interesting kind of overarching story. The numbers of people who are working over 65 have grown exponentially over the last couple of decades. Uh, about half of them have enough money to retire, and those are the people that I've focused on. Uh, understandably, retirement is rough on a lot of people. They can't make it. But the question, why are people who don't have to work working, that's what I wanted to look at. And what they're, the reason for it is that they love their work or they're engaged in something that matters to them. So they see no reason to stop working just because they've reached a certain age. They think it's silly. Yeah. I don't want the brain going idle either, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. So you, you hear the word engagement a lot. And um, among the people in the book, are, are the, I've interviewed a half a dozen doctors at the Mayo Clinic. This is a story that nobody's gotten yet. I got it first, I think. Uh, Mayo Clinic has 4,500 physicians. This is the number one medical center in the country. 10% of them, Gordon, are over the age of 65. A lot of them are in their 70s, and there's a couple in their 80s as well. And for them, engagement and what you just said, keeping the brain active, is what it's all about. Hmm. We're speaking with Mark Walton, journalist, also author of a new book called Unretired, How Highly Effective People Live Happily Ever After. Uh, concerns about cognitive decline. That's come up in uh, conversations with our presidential candidates here. Yeah, uh, I, I love it. I can't obviously speak. I'm not a physician. I can't speak to the cognitive abilities of, of uh, you know, of either candidate. But but let me say this: this is an extraordinary year. Whatever side you're on, we have these two 
older gladiators facing off against each other. And this is the first time that uh, uh, age was an issue in a, in a presidential campaign since 1984, uh, since Ronald Reagan uh, put uh, Walter Mondale down. I don't know if, if you ever saw the soundbite. I know that uh, one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I will not make age an issue <laughs> of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And, you know, Mondale went down a couple of weeks later. Right. So, but the bottom line about cognitive abilities and skills is, uh, you know, we hear a lot about inevitability of decline, of cognitive decline. Uh, but based on my research in the people I've spoken to, the neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, it's not inevitable at all. In fact, the idea of remaining engaged and continuing to work um, is, is the number one prescription for main, not only maintaining, but superseding your current cognitive ability. And I've seen that in real life. I've had it explained to me by neuroscientists. Take me a while to tell you about it. But bottom line is a senior moment may may just be forgetting your car keys, which you can do at 35. And at 70, you can solve a labor dispute. So it's... A large part of it is a myth. I'll call it that. Boy, there's a a, a stat here that you listed that yeah. Age 75 plus, the fastest yeah. growing part of the workforce. But broadly, I mean, sounds great. But broadly speaking, uh, the, 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 the 30-year-olds in the back of the class are saying, hey, you're blocking us here from, from moving up. No? Is that an issue? Yeah. Uh, not from what I've uh, learned from economists. I mean, you'll always have some who will say that. And I remember our saying that in our 30s and 40s, you know, uh, okay, wasn't yet okay, Boomer, but get out of the way. <laughs> the economy expands uh, in response to the number of available people to work within it. And um, one of the things that's happening today is ageism is fading. And um, this has been documented in the workplace. Uh, big companies are now very interested in older, experienced workers in a way they never were before because there's a labor shortage. So there's not competition, really, between 30-year-olds and older folks. Older folks will, of course, need to get paid more because they have much more experience. But I don't buy into, and none of my research indicates, that there's really a, you know, that there's really a battle between the two. One doesn't exclude the other. Thanks, Mark. Mark Walton, journalist, also author of a new book called Unretired, How Highly Effective People Live Happily Ever After. Coming up next, The Price of Work-Life Balance. Ever feel like your finance software just isn't cutting it anymore? I say dump it. Hey, it's Gordon Deal, here to tell you about Ramp. It's the financial software you need to manage your expenses and avoid unnecessary work. You see, Ramp is more than a corporate card. It's a spending management software. It'll save you time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives your finance teams control and insight. You can issue a card to each employee with specific limits and automated expense reports. Ramp will systematically collect receipts and categorize expenses in real time. Just go to ramp.com slash Gordon. No more chasing down receipts or long hours on reports. Businesses using Ramp save an average of 5% in their first year. And now get $250 when you join Ramp. Ramp.com slash Gordon. That's R-A-M-P dot com slash Gordon. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Get $250 when you join Ramp. Ramp.com slash Gordon. Glad you could spend part of your weekend with us. A recent survey by Ford Motor Company found that 52% of employed people globally 
would be willing to take a 20% pay cut for a better work-life balance. In-depth analysis from Phoebe Wall-Howard, automotive reporter at the Detroit Free Press, part of the USA Today Network. Phoebe, what's up here? The incredible thing is Ford Motor Company quietly does a study every single year, and it's a forecast so they can plan products and figure out how to interact with humanity, basically. It's a trend survey on different attitudes, fears, excitement, etc. So it's really outside the scope of automotive. It's just about life. The new trend survey for 2024 shows that a lot of really interesting findings, things they haven't seen, but the most compelling is that workers globally, including in the U.S., are willing to take a 20% pay cut for better work-life balance. And that really shocked Ford Motor Company. Wow. What does that mean if we were to drill down when they want a better work-life balance, different hours, uh, a day off, like, you know, without hassle or something like that? or Anything what? and everything, absolutely. So you have people now, um, and I think they attribute part of this to COVID, but not exclusively, that in some ways COVID made people more aware that money cannot pay for your life experiences. And it's a huge dramatic shift by generation. So for example, Gen Z, uh, the younger workers, it's 56% in the US. Millennials, it's 60%. Uh, Gen X, 43%. And of course, baby boomers, 33%, the fewest. But and the these younger- are, These are people who would take a pay cut for a better balance. 20% yeah. pay cut, that's Man. the thing. Right, right. And uh, yeah, so the better balance to your question is what does that look like? It could be a shorter work week. It could be fewer work days. Uh, it could be any way you envision it, more time for family, more time for running, hiking, reading, uh, spending time with each other. They don't want to be in the workplace. Wow. We're speaking with Phoebe Wall-Howard, automotive reporter at the Detroit Free Press, part of the USA Today Network. She's got a look at a new survey from Ford Motor Company that says the work-life balance may be worth a big pay cut as much as 20%. Uh, in the story, it said that, that women are a driving force here. How so? They say that uh, the analysts and academics who look at this data say women are a driving force because women view family as a top priority, that they are not, generally speaking, defined exclusively by their reputation in the workplace. A woman may be a CEO, but she also understands through life balance that she may be a mother, a sister, um, a best friend, that women analysts have said to me, male and female, women tend to find balance and appreciate um, a more holistic life. What's interesting with this data, by the way, is the U.S. responded, while it's a global study and it's done every year, uh, the U.S. was much higher than other places. So Canada, Mexico, the United Kingdom, Spain, France, Germany, they all had much lower numbers that their work-life balance there is um, more satisfying. And what the academics told me is that in Europe, if you match the productivity, it's equal to the US, but they've already made arrangements in the workplace where people are very happy, they work less, uh, they're paid less, but they've already achieved that balance. It's not lower productivity, but people don't burn out the way they do in the US. Hmm. Uh, so along those lines, I guess, what about awareness regarding mental health these days and, and, that, and that role? 
Another issue that Ford looked at in the 2024 trend report was a much more um, serious approach to mental health. And this is both personal and views for children. So for example, people are willing and they're seeing already um, efforts to cut out people in your life who are toxic. That's a term that was used. You have adults making dramatic changes, whether it's changing a job, eliminating friendships, eliminating relationships and things because they recognize toxins in their life. And for mental health reasons, they're eliminating them. Hmm. In addition, they're seeing with children, uh, they're, they're asking that children focus more on mental health than simply uh, academic success. A parent is less interested in pushing a child to get a 4.0 rather than having a healthy life perspective. Thanks, Phoebe. Phoebe Wall-Howard, automotive reporter at the Detroit Free Press. The lifespan of your new sofa may be much shorter than you expect. Instead of once-a-decade purchases, furniture makers and restorers say couches are becoming more like fast fashion. Here's this weekend's Nicole Murray. Joining me is Rachel Wolf, consumer trends reporter at the Wall Street Journal, here to talk about why your new $3,000 couch may be garbage in three years. Um, Rachel, fill me in, because I keep hearing the word or the phrase fast fashion with this topic. What is that? Yeah, this is sort of the furniture equivalent. So fast furniture, it's when you don't expect products to last in the case of fashion, more than a couple of wears. In the case of furniture, more than a couple of years. Okay. So what are some of the culprits, I guess, of a fast wearing out couch? Yeah. So these couches are often produced with cheaper materials. They are prone to trends. So maybe more of a focus on the aesthetics of the couch than what's underneath. And then they're often going straight to the landfill after just a few years, which is no good for the environment. And the reasons that this is happening, you know, furniture designers and artisans don't agree on just one cause, but there are a few different things going on. One of them is that there has been this huge proliferation of makers, so it's harder to spot the quality from the junk when there is just so much out there in the past. There were just a couple of furniture manufacturers who were producing the vast majority of sofas. Materials have gotten more expensive. And then we've all gotten more used to replacing our stuff more quickly. So it's a little bit on us as well. Okay. So I know you said it can be hard to spot. Is there anything people should be on the lookout for when they're shopping for a piece of furniture that's a dead giveaway that this is going to wear and tear quickly? Definitely. One furniture manufacturer I spoke to recommended looking underneath your couch and wiggling around the backs and the arms to check how it's made. And what you're looking for when you're looking underneath is to see whether the wood is joined, the pieces of wood are joined together in what's known as mortise and tenon joinery. And that's when each piece of wood is directly fastened to one another without the help of an external metal bracket. When you have an external metal bracket, it's less secure than when the wood is snug in and of itself. Uh, the other things that you want to be on the lookout for, and you probably won't be able to tell just from looking at it, but you can hopefully ask the manufacturer, is what the frame is made of. Okay. Hardwood is best, but particle board is also uh, particle board is bad. Hardwood and plywood are both good. 
Um, plywood can be really strong as well. Sometimes it gets a bad rap, but plywood is just fine. What you don't want is particle board or medium fi- or medium density fiber board, which is known as MDF. And okay. those materials fall apart really, really quickly. Uh, they don't hold a screw over time, especially after they get wet. They just crumble. And we're seeing many, many mass market couches being made with those as frames now. And they can just snap, especially uh, if they have like an arm, like a, a footrest component attached where, you know, it's like being folded in and out. It can just snap the frame and furniture restores. So they're seeing more of that than ever, even with super high-end couches. Wow. The other thing that you want to look out for is the type of leather. So-called genuine leather is not actually one single piece. It's a flurry of ground-up leather scraps. Okay. What you want to be looking for instead is top grain cowhide, and that won't flake. And, you know, it may darken over time from natural skin oils, but it ages well, like wine and whiskey, uh, not like plastic, which people are, you know, so put off when they think that they're buying a beautiful leather couch that's going to age gracefully, and then it does not happen. Yeah. So let's say you're walking into a store and you're asking the sales rep questions about these very specific materials, excuse me. Um, And let's say they give you the answer of, I don't know. Is that usually a red flag that you should hightail it out of there? If they don't know what it's made out of, I certainly wouldn't be very comfortable completing a purchase. It depends how much you're spending, though. There's um, definitely a mindset now that if something's going to fall apart anyway, you might be better off just going to big lots. Uh, That was the final quote of the piece and spending very little. And in that case, you might not be super concerned with it being made from the absolute highest quality materials. You know you're going to have to replace it anyway. Where people seem to be getting really frustrated is when they think they're buying something that's going to last and then it doesn't. That's this weekend's Nicole Murray with Wall Street Journal Consumer Trends reporter Rachel Wolf. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Gordon Deal with Nicole Murray coming up this half hour. Getting rid of all those email notifications. Plus, the best electric vehicles on the market and accommodating Detroit Lions fans. Here, who's doing it in about 20 minutes. Well, you're never going to read all your messages, but you can free yourself from the notifications. Some ideas from Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post. Heather, set this up. I mean, they're all across different devices. You have them on Android, on Apple devices, on your computer. Even if you're in a browser and you open up Gmail, there's this angry red bubble with sometimes a large number in it shaming you for not checking your emails for five to ten years. Uh, I, I just woke up on January 1st and I thought, what if those numbers were all gone? And so that's kind of where the story came from. Maybe I'm a unique case, but I suspect perhaps even you have some large numbers in your notifications. I don't. I'm a, ah. I'm a zero. Wow. But See, I, I but aspire I don't, to be you. I don't think I get the number you get, though. Like, you said you had 66,000 unread. Like, I... I, I, I guess I have strong filters at the work uh, email and the, and, the, and the Gmail and the Yahoo email, but I, I just don't get that much. And I, I was pretty low. I also talked to some people who had more than 300,000 unread oh, emails. What? And they were very calm about it. They seemed okay with their life choices. Though, though, is it like 
99% junk? I think so. I think the the thing that's happening is is our email addresses are getting into so many databases at this point. And I mean, especially for my job, a lot of it are PR pitches, things I didn't ask to receive, yeah. emails I don't act on. And I think the combination of all these things is it, it it adds up to such an overwhelming number of messages that not responding is the only way to proceed. Like, it's just not a reasonable task to try and take on. My goodness. All right. So to, to reduce that number, I mean, you could just wipe out everything, I guess, right? What, what do you suggest here? So there's a few different approaches. One, if you are like really into being clean, you can delete everything. You just delete it off the face of the earth, delete your text messages you haven't read, your voicemails you're never going to listen to. Um, But I I, I feel like in this day and age, there's always going to be a reason to go back to an old message, maybe sentimental, maybe practical. Um, So a, a slightly less chaotic version of that is moving things to an archive folder, which works for email. Um, or just marking everything as red, which is, is pretty much what I ended up doing. I left it where it was, but it no longer thinks I have an address the issue. Jeez. We're speaking with Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post. Her story is called How to Get Rid of Notifications for Unread Emails and Texts. I mean, if you have that many piled up, what does it say about your approach to work or life? <laughs> I don't know if my boss is listening. Um, well, so there's another thing. I did talk to an expert who deals with, she specifically for decades has looked at email and productivity, and they found there are some things people do to avoid getting into my specific situation. Um, one is they set really good boundaries. Like maybe your, your signature on your email is, hey, I, you know, if I don't respond in a week, email me back. I only respond between 9 and 5. Like they're very clear about how they're going to deal with that email. And then they triage. They look at their inbox and they, you know, maybe once a day immediately say, oh, this is something that needs to reply. This is something that doesn't require any action. And they file it away into the little folders. Um, So staying on top of it, obviously. But, you know, also letting people know that this isn't how you want to live your life. Maybe just call me instead or keep it in your own brain. Thanks, Heather. Heather Kelly, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Are you willing to consider something besides a traditional gas-powered vehicle if you're in the market for a new car? Tech analyst Rob Enderley at The Enderley Group has identified what he says are the five best electric cars in the world right now, some of which aren't available in the U.S. Rob, your favorites. Tesla Model 3 was the first car that they had that went through a, um, a major update. And so the, this the Tesla Model 3 now represents the cutting edge in terms of their mainstream cars. Yeah, their pickup truck has some more advanced features in it, but I just don't see that pickup truck going anyplace. So the, so the, um, it's just too impractical. Uh, but the Model 3 is very practical. Uh, it's well-priced. Uh, it's, it's, it's advanced. They've cost-reduced it, decent performance. It kind of clicks all the boxes. And, and right now, it's the, it's, at least in my mind, it's the best value and car for the money that Tesla has, which is why I listed it. All right, so it's what you get in for about thirty grand, but with add-ons yeah. you can get about forty-five. Okay. Yeah, that it's but it's very affordable for an electric. Remember when the, when the Model S first came, it was hard to get into one for under eighty, and the and the uh, they had some loss leaders. I think at sixty, sixty-five. But the, but the, but really, if you wanted a decent car that had feet that had the features you needed, you were into eighty, and and they easily got up to one hundred and twenty and above. Oh. Uh, the the um, that this is much more affordable 30 30 to 45 that's a that's the price range of of a decent 
uh, medium quality to high quality sedan. It's it's a not premium price, and it competes nicely on price with the, with the BMWs and Audis in the same class range. Okay. On the very much higher end of the cost spectrum is the Lucid Air Sapphire. This thing is just bad looking. It's it's a beast. I mean, it really, it's, it's kind of like if you wanted to build a sedan that could do pretty much everything. That's the Lucid Lucid Air Sapphire, two hundred fifty thousand dollars in this configuration. You can buy them cheaper, but that but that that's the massive configuration. It is fast, one thousand two hundred thirty four horsepower. It's got massive range. Um, the um, um, the it's the first car that'll be able to use some of the new nine hundred volt uh, charging systems, will allow it, which would allow it to charge really quickly. The the uh, um, it, it's a uh, it's a phenomenal vehicle. And they just ran it in the uh, in the uh, gum, gumball rally. Uh, sadly, because of some charger issues, it didn't break the record. But oh, the, wow. but the, for electric cars, but the uh, but it, but it showcases you can run these things coast to coast. It it just a lot of range, a lot of performance, um, um, uh, a, a very short charging time. It it for for cars sold in the U.S. This is the gold standard at the moment. Man, zero to sixty one point eight nine seconds. We're speaking yeah, with Rob Enderley. Press not to end up in the back seat. Right. We're speaking with Rob Enderley, founder and principal analyst at the Enderley Group. He's identified the five best electric vehicles. All right, so that one's available, the Lucid Air Sapphire in the U.S. Uh, what about the, the Fisker Ocean Extreme? This is one you've got your eye on, right? Yeah, I, I've ordered this myself. Uh, the, the, uh, so 364 miles of range, which is decent in the configuration that I bought. It's about $65,000 in the, in the configuration that I addressed as well, which is a premium configuration, not entry. That entry price... I believe is around forty-two thousand uh, dollars. No, sorry, thirty-eight thousand uh, dollars. The, the uh, uh, but the, in the configuration that I liked, it's more like sixty-five thousand. And the and it gives you the the multi, the twin engines, the long battery range, and the solar panel roof. And and part of what makes this car different is that solar panel roof. Uh, so if you leave it outside, it will maintain the battery for you, uh, maintain the car's temperature for you wow. without bring, without drawing down on the battery. And in theory, if you were to break down in the middle of nowhere without power, uh, you could just leave it sitting for a few days and get enough power to get wherever you were going. Though I wouldn't make that a practice because yeah. <laughs> those panels will charge the battery, the main battery, very slowly. But at least they'll charge it, and, and so that means you have a way to get out of trouble. One of the cool features of the car is it's got a, a table that comes out for the driver. So if you if you want a snack or whatever, you've got a place to put your put your uh, your your burger or, and, and shake or whatever. Hmm. Uh, while you're driving, and the and the um, um, uh, and then it's got something called the California mode, where you hit, a, hit one button, and it opens all the windows in the in the um, in the car, uh, mostly so your dog can enjoy the uh, the outdoor <laughs> weather. But but it gives it kind of a convertible feel as well. So it's a great little car, decent performance, not as fast as the Lucid, of course, but the uh, but but uh, but decent performance, good looking. It looks it looks to my eye and a lot, a lot like a Range Rover, which is a an attractive vehicle, and. Um, and, um, and as I said, I ordered it. I, I, I thought enough of it to order one myself. Thanks, Rob. Rob Enderley, founder and principal analyst at The Enderley Group. If you still have landline phone service, you may have noticed that your monthly bills have been skyrocketing. That's because the FCC no longer regulates copper lines and phone companies are jacking up the price of their service. UMA is an internet home phone service that lets you keep enjoying the safety and peace of mind of a home phone without paying an arm and a leg. In fact, with a one-time purchase of the UMA Tello, 
you get internet home phone service for free. All you pay are applicable taxes and fees. Unlike mobile phones, UMA has address-based 911, so dispatchers will know exactly where to find you in an emergency. In the event you call 911, UMA can send a text alert to loved ones. UMA even includes a free mobile app so you can take your home number on the go. And don't worry, you can keep your home phone number for a one-time fee or get a new one for free. Setup is easy. It takes less than 10 minutes. Stop paying too much for home phone service. Visit uma.com slash Gordon Deal today to get a special discount. That's O-O-M-A dot com slash Gordon Deal. Hey, glad you're with us. There's lots of history in securities fraud of pillow talk cases in which insider traders glean confidential info from romantic partners. But Corinne Ramey, Courts reporter at the Wall Street Journal says the COVID era offered a twist. Secrets weren't spilled in the bedroom or over a bottle of wine, but during the humdrum routine of just two adults working from home. Corey, explain this. Yeah, so there's a a long history of these kind of insider trading cases known as pillow talk cases, where one member of a couple uh, uses non-public information gleaned from the other and then trades ahead of a deal or announcement. Illegally, I should say, illegally trades ahead of a deal or announcement. But what we're seeing more recently is this conduct becoming sort of more brazen in a way that was really facilitated by working so closely together at home. Mm. All right, so you open the story with this guy, Stephen Teixeira. Uh, he was, what, his girlfriend worked at Morgan Stanley, and, and explain what happened then. So his girlfriend worked at Morgan Stanley, as you said, and during the pandemic, they were working from their apartment in Queens. And at first she asked him to help her out. She said, you know, take a take a look at my email while I'm, you know, going to my gym classes, running errands, just so I don't miss anything important. And so he did. And he even used a device called a mouse jiggler so that her desktop or her um, laptop wouldn't go to sleep. But then he started snooping and realized that he could look at her calendar invites to figure out information about upcoming deals. He ultimately used that information to make trades for himself and also shared that with uh, some of his friends. Goodness. How much do or did he allegedly profit or how much did the others allegedly profit? So he profited um, thousands and he is now cooperating with prosecutors. He pleaded guilty. One of his friends, Jordan Meadow, is going to trial this year and profited um, much more than that. Mm. We're speaking with Corey Ramey, courts reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Her story is called Love and Deceit. Work from home era spawns pillow talk insider trading. How about the guy Seth Markin? So Seth Markin was a trainee for the FBI and was during the pandemic was more or less living with his girlfriend who was an associate at a law firm working on a pharmaceutical deal he there was some boxes delivered to their apartment full of binders and information about this deal and she asked him to help unload the binders and he did and he started spotting information about the deal and combining that with other information he gleaned about from her he figured out what was going to happen and shared tips with more than 20 people. Man, uh, you said part of the issue here is for prosecutors determining if a partner was actually in on this. Yeah, I think in especially some of these older cases, 
it's a little unclear if the person who typically is the uh, wife or girlfriend maybe told her partner things that she shouldn't have told them non-public information and part of that is because you know these things happen behind closed doors we don't have recordings or video cameras keeping track of what we say when we're at home together thanks Corey. that's corinne ramey courts reporter at the wall street journal we'll finish with this a growing number of businesses are accommodating fans of the detroit lions delta airlines is going big to accommodate those going to San Francisco for the NFC Championship game on Sunday. Not only is the airline adding a direct flight, it's also using a larger plane to accommodate more than 190 passengers. The additional flight is for the return trip back to Detroit Metro Airport. It leaves San Francisco Monday morning. If the Lions pull off a win over the 49ers in Santa Clara, fans can expect to see additional routes to Las Vegas for the Super Bowl next month. Additionally, General Motors is allowing third-shift workers on Sunday to come in late so they can watch the game, which kicks off at 6.30 Eastern time. And this may come as no surprise. This year's NFC Championship game between the 49ers and Lions is slated to be the most expensive conference championship game in league history, with the average ticket price coming in at more than $2,400. That'll do it for this hour. For Nicole Murray, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend 